McDonald's Cider, Goodwill Hunting, Lonely Pioneer. Today on The Pursuit, Paul Lim. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Professor Paul Lim. Dr. Lim teaches at Vanderbilt Divinity School and the College of Arts and Science. He's earned four degrees from schools like Yale University and the University of Cambridge. He's an award-winning historian of Reformation Europe and has delivered papers and lectures at Oxford, Cambridge, London, St. Andrews, Rotterdam, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn, as well as Sri Lanka, India, Cambodia, Switzerland, France, Ethiopia, Kenya, China, Japan, and South Korea. But despite all those impeccable accolades, Paul found himself teaching me theology during my years at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. But as you'll hear, no matter where you find yourself in your career, sometimes it's hard to shake some of the formative experiences of childhood. So Paul, you grew up playing baseball. What was your position? Uh, so when I lived in Korea, I, when I was much younger, I pitched. But when I came to America, I played uh, middle infield, but primarily second base. And uh, where did you hit in the lineup? I often let off. Oh, were you fast then? Oh, <laughs> I was pretty fast back then. But as a 53-year-old guy, that's, uh, that's usually not the word I use to describe myself anymore. <laughs> So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up partly in Seoul, Korea, and then my family moved here to the States when I was 15. So I was finishing up middle school, and we moved to uh, firstly to Philadelphia, okay, and then from there to Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Yeah, I went through ninth through half of 12th grade in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I often don't talk about it, but in the middle of my senior year in high school, just when I was about to make some friends, my family bought a small business in Newark, Delaware, and they moved there in the middle of the semester. So my last semester of high school was the only semester I spent at uh, Newark High School in Delaware. Oh my gosh. I know it was pretty tough. So And so you're graduated with kids you just don't know. That's right. That's right. And I, I had already applied to colleges, right? So uh -huh. there's little to no need for any of the counseling office or any of the administrative persons at this high school. You know, it's funny, like this is only 1986 I'm talking about. And right. my memory is all very fuzzy and hazy, but. <laughs> that's why we're talking. I know that's true. All I remember is that I really didn't give rat's butt about school at that time because it literally wouldn't matter. Let me ask you, when you first moved to America, did you speak English? Had you studied it? Like, how did you survive? Well, how, what was that transition like? I mean, you know, it's kind of funny like that. My high school years were truly dark. Mm. I didn't speak much English. In fact, so traveling, traveling down memory lane here. <laughs> when my when my family moved, well, it was actually initially just my mom and my sister, my brother and I. Okay. My father stayed back in Korea trying to take care of some business, which he got in more trouble with. So um, oh. that's for another day. But yeah, I went to um, an elementary school trying to learn English, and I think it was a uh, a truly a powerful experience of mortification of self. You know, because you're going to an elementary school. This is in Korea. No, this is in Philadelphia. Uh, I think. Wait, what? How old were you when you came? I was 15. So, I mean, imagine that. I was. Okay, because you're saying elementary school, but you. No, I had to go to an elementary school to study at this e uh, ESL program. Wait, as a 15 year old? Yes. Yeah, so, I was studying with 
like students from Russia, Lebanon, yeah, and couple of Korea, and no, they're all older, so they're all like high school age. I but see. then for some weird reason, and for some reason that would never pass for allowable practice today, right? We were actually placed in an elementary school, <sighs> so I remember going there, and that was kind of my way to learn English. I think you know, first week of my life in America, we were in L.A. Because my uh, late uncle, okay, who was a pastor, had lived in Simi Valley, California, which is Southern California. Okay, and uh, we went to Disneyland, and I thought I spoke English, right? So I was, since my dad wasn't there, I'm the older son, though I have an okay. older sister. I, I was de facto a spokesperson for my family. So we had ordered some food, and my uncle was one on one end of the line, and I. I don't know what happened, but I I either said I will order it myself or he just let me order. Uh-huh. So I think it was some kind of fast food joint. I don't know whether it's McDonald's or something. But all I remember is that they were asking me what I wanted to drink. Uh-huh. So in Korea, 7-Up or Sprite is called cider, okay. right? C-I-D-E-R. Uh-huh. I don't know why it's called cider, but in Korean, it'll be cider. Cider. So I think the I think it was a lady who asked me what I wanted to drink. And I said, I want cider. And she said, what? And and I began just, just spiraling down, right? right. And I... I, th- I thought maybe I should say cider or cider or yeah. it didn't work. And I just kind of looked around in desperation for my uncle. I don't know. And then I remember saying something like cola or something, you know, uh-huh. which actually is a word, right? Cola is actually, right. but that didn't work. And I was completely mortified. And that basically, you know, what ended up happening was that basically made me mutant dumb or dumb and mute or like I just never spoke. Really? Yeah. I mean, not not literally, but my mom would say she would often find me in the bathroom mumbling to myself. She said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I guess I was trying to practice English, right? So, yeah. I mean, when I think about those days and where I am now, I mean, naturally, you know, if you live in a country for about 37 years, 38 uh-huh. years, you're likely to pick up the language and sure. gain some kind of competency or fluency. But I never would have have imagined that I'll make a living primarily by talking. Okay, so you have this experience in the first week of moving to America mm. where you've sort of been rendered dumb mm. and mute. <laughs> but then you have to somehow, so like I have these data points, you're telling me that you had you know, you're mumbling to yourself in the bathroom trying to practice English, but I know eventually you end up at Yale. Mm. <laughs> like, how does that connect? Yeah, I know it's um, strange providence, I suppose. I mean, strange to me and not strange to God, but no, I mean, you know, I think I was, I won't go into all the details because some of our stories are just too painful, mm. but I think somehow I made a strong determination that I would want to go to a school like Yale. You know, I had a cousin. I still have that cousin <laughs> who was at Yale at that time. I see. And I deeply admired that. I, I was like, oh, well, you know, wouldn't that be nice for me to go there? Most people would, you know, laugh at that idea. Right. right. You just got here. And what do you mean you're going to try to go to a school like Yale? But uh, how how did I do it? Um, I can only attribute that to God's grace. I mean, I think, you know, I, I worked hard. I I, I think I, I worked really hard. Sure. But um, <laughs> I do remember this. When I told my guidance counselor and my high school in Cherry Hill that I wanted to apply to these schools, she looked at me most pitifully and said something like, this is a real great list. I don't know whether you should also have some kind of backup, fallback <laughs> options, right? Yeah. And... I somewhat undeterred. I I don't remember what I said, but I think to the effect of 
Well, because I want to be careful as I try to re quote unquote reconstruct the past narratives, right. <laughs> which I haven't thought about in the thirty five years. Right? <laughs> You're welcome. I, You're I don't want to. I mean, I'm almost writing a historical novel here, right? I mean, because right. let's put it this way: the end result was she allowed me to apply, and the end result is that I don't think I applied to a lot of these fallback option schools. I think I went yeah. like hog hog and applied to these top schools. Yeah. Because I think, I, so I was a member of a National Honor Society. I, I was climbing up in class ranks, but I started, again, second half of my freshman year is when I started life yeah. in America. And at this point, faith and God are not part of the picture. That's right. I, when I went to college, and my mom basically read the entire book of Proverbs from Wilmington, Delaware to New Haven, Connecticut, asking that her son gain some kind of Solomonic wisdom as she reads the entire book to me. Wait, in like... Like in the car ride? In the car ride. And she wasn't even playing the tape. <laughs> oh, I love your mother. I love that. She wasn't ta- playing the tape. <laughs> you know, she was actually literally reading it. Oh, Were you listening? Well, you had to pretend. Mm. And I guess I was listening, <laughs> but none of it really registered. Right. But I was just really excited to go to college. Right. I mean, one, like I was like, yeah, this is it. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to play ball. I'm going to party. I'm going to yeah. have friends. I mean, it sounds so lame, but you know. And then my dad, as he's dropping me off and saying goodbye to me, man, a few words. Mm-hmm. He said, son, you're you're now on your own and you're your own guy. So you can do whatever you want. But, you know, he's basically said, whatever you do in college is fine. But I just want to remind you that uh, don't do drugs. And I said, mm. um, that's it. Like, yeah, that's a very interesting that's a very interesting juxtaposition between what your mom is trying to instill in you oh, yeah. and what your dad is saying. Guess which parental advice I took more seriously and put into practice. <laughs> <laughs> so you became a Christian in co- Like, how did you become a Christian in college? Yeah, so um, I went to a retreat that my uh, brother-in-law was going to be one of the speakers there. Your sister's husband. That's right. Um, okay. It still exists. Uh, it's called Oil, One in Love. Yeah. I've been there. I became a Christian there. And it wasn't through preaching. It was actually through uh, the song, one of the songs that they were playing. Keith, Keith Green's song, To Obey's Verity and Sacrifice, I Don't Need Your Money, I Want Your Life. Yeah. And it was by listening to this song that I, I don't know, something profound. I mean, something kind of weird happened. I wouldn't, I didn't call it profound then. Mm-hmm. I just began like crying. It was, you know, because the lyrics is like, I don't need your money, I want your life. Right. And, and it just, it was God speaking to me in ways that I think since, then only one other time can I say that I've heard like God spoke to me in a yeah. powerful way. Yeah. Yeah. And and I came home very confused. Um huh. I knew that I became a Christian, but I didn't it was between my first and second semester junior year. And I had lived my life in such a way that for me to tell my friends that I was a Christian now, uh-huh. I feared that it would be taken as a joke or like it may do greater disservice to the cause of Jesus Christ. So was I excited that I became a Christian? Yes. But that excitement is eclipsed by my fear. Mm. Like, what am I going to do? And I think maybe we'll all live with it, you know, because otherwise we won't have psychologists or psychiatrists making their <laughs> right. living. Like, Fear of humans, right? Fear of men. Yeah. And I think that was that was me. I mean Was it because of the acknowledgement of who you had been and how much that had to change? Yes. I, th- I think so. No, I, I think that was what I was really, yeah, I wasn't living, I mean, I wasn't a Christian, so, you know, it would have been unfair for one to expect that I lived like a Christian, but, right. you know, I, I, I became a Christian and I was, I remember like, what does that mean? Am I going to lose friends? And that happened, right? So I, I gained a new set of friends. Okay. So new new set of friends emerged. 
new lifestyle emerged, new set of habits emerged, okay. and also a new way of just looking at the world. And I think that was the most profound impact. I began to look at the world differently. Mm-hmm. I began to look at people differently. I began to look at my life and its significance or the the relative absence thereof differently. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, and I became really, really hungry to read the Bible and uh, read the Bible a lot. And I remember reading different parts of the Bible, thinking to myself, wow, this is crazy. Like I remember reading this Song of Songs and it's like, how can this be part of the Bible? This is this holy Bible and yet it's talking about human sexuality and I loved it. This is one of my favorite books, you know, Yeah. but I, I think in my early kind of a Christian nurture, I wasn't given a lot of secondary sources to read, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. I was given the primary source text, like read the Bible. Right, right. And so, and just trying to rejig my own identity. How do I live my life in the remaining three semesters as a follower of Jesus? You know, it's really interesting, Paul, as as I've known you and as I'm hearing your story now, mm. there's this sort of recurring theme, I think, in which when you came to America, you were sort of thrust into a situation where you had to figure it out on your own. And yes. you and you did, and you, you know, you put your head down and you worked hard and you figured it out. And then you became a Christian and it was like, okay, well, we got to figure this out. And you're thrust into a new identity, new world, uh, and not really given a lot of help, like not given a lot of direction <laughs> and just like, you got to figure it out. Yes. And I think even in your career, like as we move forward, right? Like in your career, you and I have, we've talked about this so many times yeah. that you're also in, in a world, you know, as an evangelical, yes. you are again, thrust in a world where mm-hmm. you're sort of alone. Yes. And why do, why do you keep finding yourself in these situations? You know what? That's a great point. And you're, oh, wow to cry and i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah you know i i wondered i wondered at myself richard yeah why couldn't we just settle in k-town in la <laughs> and i go to like ucla or cal state la get a job working primarily with koreans yeah right you know what i mean yeah realtor or right podiatrist or right. something import or export <laughs> import export dry cleaners car wash you know, raise a family, couple of kids, you know, yeah. and yeah. no, that's not, that's not what happened to me. Um, you know what? I have no idea. I mean, the short and the best answer is only God knows. But yes, as a description of what has happened in my life journey, uh, in as much as I don't like to face it and, and express it that way, you're right. Yeah. I've had to do things on my own. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I had to figure this stuff out on my own. And I don't know why. I know, Paul, this, uh, I wasn't going to bring this up. But I just feel like this is the moment. You and I have had one of the most memorable conversations at a retreat. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's that scene in Goodwill Hunting. Yes. Where, where Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck basically says, Yes. You know, yes. you better not be here 20 years from yes. now laying brick. Yes. Because you're sitting on this lottery ticket and, you, yes. <laughs> and you're afraid to, to cash it in. Right, right. And then he's like, He's like, what? You know, like, I don't, what? Everybody's saying, like, I, I owe it to myself to, you know, do this. And I'm like, no, you don't owe it to yourself. You owe it to all of us. You owe it to me because mm. I, none, we don't have mm. what you have. I owe, yeah, I, I owe it to Richard Lee. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I think you're right. And, you know, this is maybe, maybe this is God's appointed means of reminding me mm. that I owe it to you and others. I don't know. <laughs> You know, you're right. Like, you know, you are Gordon Conwell and so was I. Gordon Conwell, although it has, it is his own bubble. Mm -hmm. Ever since coming to America in December 1982, I have been 
reminded of my racial otherness every blessed day of my life. Mm. It's not that something racist happens to me every day, sure, but something as trivial and quotidian as walking into a local Starbucks, I do a quick scan and nine out of 10 times, I'm the only yeah. uh, color person in the, in the space. Yeah. I think it has done something to me. And I think one of the positive upshots actually, and this is kind of a, you know, swimming back to my present day. Yeah. I became a lot more aware of um, the experiences and the travails of persons of color, particularly African-Americans living here. Sure. Um, and how every day of their life, their sense of adequacy, inadequacy, identity, and all that is measured by someone other than themselves. Yeah. And I think this is where, um, for me at least, where the gospel really intersects into crosses into our identity and our own kind of idolatry towards significance or meaning. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, you're right. You know, I have been alone. I felt like, you know, people have used words like pioneer and mm. yeah, I mean, that's not untrue, but I think for the most part of my experience is far less of a pioneer, but much more of a like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> like the personal experience of pioneers often is that, I think, but it's just that the masses look at that person and say, oh, well, you're pioneer for the rest of us. Yeah, I don't, for better and for worse, I don't take myself that seriously. And I think it cuts both ways for better and for worse. Right. But I am just trying to be me. You know, yes, I mean, I, I owe it to some people, you're right. I owe it to my family and friends. And mm. I was telling a friend of mine about the impact that my experience at Gordon Conwell has had. Yeah. It's actually both colleagues and students, but more and more, I mean, ironically, or because there were like 1,200 of them, meaning the students, and about 30 of them, meaning the faculty, that I have far more interactions with, far more students. Uh -huh. Like in my years at Vanderbilt, I have had three Gordon Conwell students okay. to do their PhDs. Okay. Uh, one, Jonathan Warren. Warren, the other Drew Martin, the other one Elizabeth Lefevre, okay. who's doing her PhD with me right now. And I think, you know, for me, it's just um, it's a great kind of reminder that my labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's connect the dots. Yes. You graduate from Yale and you end up pursuing further studies in theology uh, at various schools and, and eventually end up at Cambridge. Yep. So what was that journey like for you? When did you know that you wanted to sort of pursue academia? So in 1997, my wife, Mi Jung, or she goes by Mickey, she and I left to go to Cambridge. I came about in that sort of a, a, a trajectory in a meandering and unplanned fashion, really. When I went to a seminary, which, is, which used to be called Biblical Theological Seminary, now it's called Missio Seminary. Okay. And I was, you know, at this school and I was an MA student planning to go to law school, but peer pressure got the best of me. So I switched to MDiv. Huh. I mean, that's all I can say. It was, it was real peer pressure. It wasn't because I was, I love God more by doing it. So people basically pressured me into doing it. Something like untrue, but they did say things like, if you really love God, you'd be doing MDiv and be a pastor rather than <laughs> go and be a lawyer. So again, um, God used that, I guess. Um, but then I was serving at a church, firstly in Cherry Hill, secondly in Philly, mm -hmm. as an EM pastor. And I felt like I was an abject failure as a pastor, huh. uh, not as a preacher. I thought I could I could get up and give a sermon that was yeah. okay. But just in terms of pastoral, I mean, I had a couple of 
parishioners with whom I just did not get along. Okay. Uh, they didn't like me, and I resented them. Mm. And the congregation was just kind of sort of falling apart. And I won't go into the details again, but sure. And I remember telling my seminary professor um, that I felt like I was a real failure as a pastor. Huh. And then he asked me, "Have you ever considered becoming a professor?" <laughs> and I said, "No, I have not." You know. Um, uh, and he's like, "Well, you should." And he had gone to Oxford for his uh, doctorate, mm. and he said, "Why don't you go to Cambridge?" And when you're done, I'll come back and teach with me. So was he also agreeing that you were a failure as a pastor? <laughs> yeah, you know what? Thanks for bringing that up because I never thought about it, <laughs> thought of it like that until just now. <laughs> I was just kidding. No, I, of course that's okay. But then, and then I, I I went from there to Princeton Theological Seminary because my former senior pastor at Yongsang Presbyterian Church wouldn't let me leave after serving there only for a couple of years. He said, no, you shouldn't go to Cambridge right now. You shouldn't go to England now. Oh. He said, why don't you go to like Westminster Theological Seminary and do a THM? I had just started dating somebody from Princeton Seminary. So that made it pretty easy for me. I went to Princeton Seminary okay. to study, but to date this woman, who's not my wife now, but, you know, um, <laughs> I, you know, God used that experience to go to Princeton. And I uh, had a very interesting experience. I think loved a lot of it, um, loved the campus, loved some of the mm -hmm. friends that I had, uh, some of whom I'm still in touch with. And, mm -hmm. and in that year, I did a THM degree uh, part-time basis, so uh, from 95 to 97. Okay. And then 97 September, I left to go to Cambridge. It was a great experience. So by the time I left, I thought I was going to go and be a professor. Okay. I didn't know where. And while in England, I thought of a number of different options. Long story short, because all my stories can get long, <laughs> God had a different plan than my own plan. And God allowed me to come and take this position at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Yeah. A position that I didn't know was open. Yeah. And in 2001, I uh, just freshly minted with the PhD. Super excited about this full-time position. I don't even think I asked him how much you're going to pay me because I was just so so grateful for the fact that I had a job. And I think in my estimation then, and it is now too, I just did not think that I would be a fit faculty for a school like that. Huh. I really didn't think so because I thought they were just, that was like the, the Ivy League of evangelical, all seminaries, particularly evangelical ones. And I looked at yeah. the faculty and they're all from, a lot of them were from, you know, the Ivies and yeah. Oxfords and Cambridges. And I was like, whoa. That's not me. Although <laughs> you literally went to Cambridge. Yeah. And I literally went to Yale. Right. And so I, I, I think I had a <laughs> right. pedigree, but I didn't think I, that was me. And I think it, it may be, it may be. Uh, it's because of that McDonald's worker. Yes. No, it is. It is. It is. And again, I'm not blaming her or him right. or whoever that person was, right. but it's just that it, it kind of puts you in a place where you never feel like you have arrived. Yeah. No, I think I would say that on the whole, that's a good thing. Right. Keeps you humble. Yeah. You know what? And I wondered about that. I wonder, like, is it because of the, is that sort of a overall similar experience among persons of color or huh. non-majority persons? I have no idea. But wow. I'll say this, and I don't want to meander. I think God uses all of our experiences and and snapshots of you know our stories as a way to bring us to Him and bring uh, and shine again sounds pietistic but shine the glory of God's love and light mm -hmm. through us. Okay, so you do your stint of teaching at Gordon Conwell, mm -hmm. uh, but eventually you make your way and you make the transition to a what I would 
classify as a non-evangelical divinity school. Yep. I imagine that must have been a difficult choice because you're really sort of choosing a different path in your career and how you're known within the industry. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, I like that expression within the industry. Yeah, this is an industry. And, and yeah, I think um, several people have noted that transition. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeking out the advice of um, a good friend, Miroslav Wolf, mm-hmm. who went from Fuller Seminary to Yale Divinity School. So I remember asking Miroslav about this transition, and he said, you know what, I think you'll remain relatively the same person, but different sets of opportunities will be presenting themselves to you. And that was about uh, 2006, that was about 14 years ago. Yeah. And I can say that that's honestly what has happened. Hopefully I remain relatively the same person, but I think um, what has changed is the kind of opportunities. Now, it is also true that uh, with opening up one door, other doors close. I don't often speak at evangelical churches. Yeah. I hardly ever speak at Asian American contexts. Yeah. Again, I'm not putting a value judgment on what is better or what is not better, right? I mean, it's the, sure. although I, you know, so it is kind of funny because when I was younger, pastoring in Philadelphia um, in this Korean American enclave, I do remember wondering whether what I had to say would have find any resonance with non-Korean. Yeah. I, I, I remember that. I remember that. And I remember t- telling a friend of mine, Danny Kwan, who is at that church still in in Philly. Yeah, we used to talk about that. We used to talk about like, hey man, like, do you think what we have to say and offer is meaningful to like people outside of our Korean American community? Right. Like, can we hang? Yeah, can we hang? And and I think we basically concluded that no, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> we didn't want to say absolutely not, but it was like, ah, well, look at us. I mean, like, we are here. So that's yeah. just that's proving one thing. But you know, so it's been a very wild ride, and um. I think I have come to appreciate what the school stands for in terms of social justice. And mm-hmm. and there is also that common overlap between evangelicals and social justice, especially of late. And so I find that to be a very interesting place to be. But I'm not going to downplay the fact that I have often felt kind of isolated. And I, th- I wondered, you know, if I was a white evangelical, would I have felt a little bit more included? I don't know. Huh. Again, I'm not I'm not a white evangelical. So I don't I don't want to answer for white evangelicals who may teach at a school like Yale or Harvard or Chicago, yeah. you know, divinity schools. I have no idea. I'm not them. I, I dare not say for them. But for me, because for a long time, I was the only Asian American um, faculty of whatever type in the divinity school. Wow. And my circle of socialization was not, didn't overlap with my Vanderbilt divinity school colleagues that much. Okay. Um, I've enjoyed my 14 years at Vanderbilt. Yeah. I've had a couple of opportunities to think about, imagine life outside of it, uh-huh. but each time decided to stay because I think there is something about Vanderbilt that I like. I love the fact that it's within a larger university context. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that I get to train PhD students. I love the fact that I have some colleagues who are really trying to do right by God and by neighbor and trying to bring about a better instantiation of justice in the world and mercy in the world. I love a lot of it, but I can't also deny the fact that I feel alone a lot of times. And yeah, but I also came to realize, you know, a lot of academics feel lonely. Right. I mean, like, that's true. I, I was talking to a sociologist friend of mine and he said, yeah, man, I feel lonely a lot of times. I said, yeah, what? I had no idea. I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, that's sort of a job requirement because you have to isolate yourself and you have to be okay with huh. self-imposed isolation of, because when you're writing, when I'm writing a book or when I'm writing an article, 
I'm not often collaborating with people. I got to do it myself, you know? Right. That's interesting. You know, after 14 years, I, I can honestly say that I can see the hand of God uh, in sending me to a school like Vanderbilt. It's been very good to me. Um, I am grateful. Uh, my dean knows that I'm an evangelical, that she knows that I serve at an evangelical church as a scholar in residence. And I... I, I enjoy being at, you know, Christ Press and at Vanderbilt Divinity because uh-huh. in one circle, I mean, I don't fit into either one perfectly. Right. And I think that's okay. Maybe it is that lady who asked me about my drink option. Maybe there was a powerful reminder yeah. that I'm not here. I don't belong here. Yeah. But then again, you know what? I mean, so this is true too, Richard. I mean, in your years as a pastor, so many of our people don't feel like they belong. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. And so many people in general, I'm not talking about just Christians. I mean, so many people feel like, but then I think the difference is some people are just relatively oblivious to that. Yeah. And just live your life. And I think in some ways, I think that's better. You just kind of live your life each day. (laughs) Come on. Don't worry so much about, oh, I think so, man. I think, you know, self-absorption has its own kind of price tag, I think. Yeah. I I see what you mean. And when you say better, like a more peaceful day-to-day life. Maybe. Yeah, you know what? Okay, let me let me backtrack because I I, <laughs> I I realize the potential enormity of what I have just said. Yeah, I struggle with um, with depression. Mm. So I'm not making light of people who struggle with uh, mental health issues. I mean that has become a real issue. Yeah, and so as opposed to some people who say, yeah, we're coddling each generation into like this kind of imbecility. Perhaps, but even if so, you have to deal with the fact that they're here, right? Yeah. I mean, my 14 years of being at Vanderbilt, uh, seven, eight of which was spent in living with first-year students as their um, head of house. Mm. And when I first began in 2008, I don't think there was there were as many students who were struggling with uh, mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Maybe there were, but they weren't out. You know what I mean? Right. But now, right, right. more people are out and are candid about that and say like, hey, this is me. Can you help me? Or, or in other cases, what are you going to do about that? Uh-huh. Right? And so... Yes, but what I am saying is, as someone who's struggling with mental health, in some ways, the less I talk about it, the less I think about myself and try to be more outwardly focused, it does help me in my daily struggle with my demons and my depression. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate your words and your thoughts and your own struggle in that and helping people process through that. What I find so interesting, Paul, is, I mean, I took your class, right? I mean, I I sat Mm. in your class. And I, I listened to you, and as a Korean-American yep. at Gordon-Conwell, I looked at you yep. and said, we have made it, <laughs> right? Like, you owe it to me, Yes, yes. right? Like, you're there, you're teaching yep. you, not just me, but you're teaching yep. all, every student that is in your class. And there was a sense of uh, solidarity yes. um, in just being able to see you up there. Yeah. And now, right, you've made this transition from this enclave of the evangelical enclave to now uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School. And I, I mean, like if we step back, and this is what's always fascinated me about your story is when you step back and you look at somebody who you know came to a foreign country, barely spoke the language at 15 years old, and in you know a few short years, Yale uh, uh, University, mm. playing baseball at Yale, even though you know you didn't play in high school, right? You're playing baseball right. at Yale, and then you go on to get degree after degree after degree, go to Cambridge, teach at a well-renowned seminary like Gordon-Conwell, and then move over to Vanderbilt Divinity School. And yet, when when we hear you tell your story, you're still passing it through 
the race filter. You're still passing it through the isolation uh, filter. You're still passing it through uh, an insecurity filter <laughs> that you have mentioned day to day. It's just fascinating to me because it could be so easy for someone to sit here and be like, oh, Paul, like Paul Lim, man, he's made it. Like he's sitting on top. And yet to hear you talk about it, it's still a struggle. Like day to day, yeah, it's still, there's still pain. Yeah, no, I, and let's not edit this one out because my instant reaction was like, oh, that, that is embarrassing. Mm. What a loser. <laughs> but that is me. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, like, you know, somebody asked me, someone very close to me said, why do you think about that stuff all the time? Mm. I don't. And that's my beloved sister. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I came to realize is that I don't have to expect others to get my story. Yeah. If they do, that's great. If they don't, that's okay. Because my parents don't get it. My brother and sister don't get it. Yeah. My wife kind of, since she has to put up with my <laughs> insanity and inanity every day, I think she kind of gets it. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I came to realize is that, you know what, uh, for me to expect others to understand me and be upset if they don't see me or get me, maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe what I need to do is to really come to this point of resolution that Christ and Christ alone sees me, knows me, and accepts me fully. Yeah. Because it is salvation in Christ alone, not in others' approval. Although I go back on the treadmill, hopping on it every day, seeking other people, their approval rather than that of Jesus. Yeah. And I think that's how I have to kind of come to terms with myself. Yeah. You know what? I think whatever the upshot of this interview or conversation, this is a, in some ways very personally helpful for me huh. to think about God's providential guidance in my life. Yeah. And I put my headphone, and one of the effects of putting on good headphones is that it really literally cancels out outside noise. <laughs> right. So you're really in an echo, literally an echo chamber of yourself. <laughs> It literally is an echo chamber, yeah. and I have the strong urge to get out of it. I mean, you know, I think one of the books that has, that has helped me a lot mm. is not written by an Asian or Asian-American. Yeah. It's written by a North African, uh, Augustine, uh, you know, world's classic, his confession. Yeah. He's really kind of delving into his interiority, only to find ultimately that God is right there, you know, embracing him, loving him, yeah. knowing him, yeah. and transforming him. And I think that's perhaps the, the most common theme of our life journey if we are owned by god yeah. claimed by christ then in spite of our particular narrative trajectories and pasts and presence and futures i think we can look each other in the eyeball and say in this most surreal days of covid19 i want to acknowledge that you matter to me i want to acknowledge that yeah. you matter to god doesn't expect others to get his story, but in some ways we can all understand parts of his story. The stories of pain, loneliness, even depression, but also the stories of God seeing, knowing, and accepting us. I hope you are all encouraged no matter what season of your story you may find yourself in. You can find some of Paul's teaching and preaching on YouTube if you search for him. Just make sure you don't click on Paul Lim, the professional dart player, because that's like a whole different thing. I hope you're enjoying the pursuit. I, I apologize if I was a little bit late getting this episode out. I recently broke my leg playing baseball, and it set me back a few weeks. But if you always want to know when the latest episodes of The Pursuit are coming out, clicking subscribe is really the best and quickest way. 
Now as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. In fact, my dad says something like, you know, you should be an anesthesiologist because when you get an anesthesiologist, you don't have to talk to people a lot. Because <laughs> you're basically putting people to sleep 